everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. Today, I'm so happy to say we are joined by David Korn. He's Mother Jones's Washington bureau chief and an on-air analyst for MSNBC. I know a lot of you have seen him on air a lot. He is also a New York Times bestselling author. His most recent book is American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. He is also the co-author with Michael Isakoff of Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. He also has written Showdown Hubris with Isakoff, The Lies of George W. Bush, and the ebook 47% Uncovering the Romney Video that Rocked the 2012 Election. You can find him on Twitter at David Korn DC, and he has a newsletter that I want to recommend to everybody called Our Land, which you can find on davidcorn.com. Welcome, David. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Um, I'm very good at passing judgment. Thank you, Jessica. <laughs> my family loves it. I can only imagine my family also a huge fan of all of the judgments that I have on a constant basis. Now, we are recording this episode the day before the midterm elections, and I think it's the perfect moment to spend some time on your most recent book, American Psychosis. I want to recommend it to everybody. It's a beautifully written book, and I think it's such a contribution in terms of tracing where we've been and where we are. And I want to have this conversation with the understanding that not all the listeners have yet been able to read the book. And of course, you go back much further than the mid-20th century in the book, but the narrative begins with the 1964 Republican National Convention. Can you tell us a little bit about why a book about how the GOP has basically encouraged extremism, bigotry, paranoia to gain power? Why do we begin in 1964 with the RNC convention? Well, we're all very familiar with the mob that descended upon the Capitol on January 6, 2021, that was incited to violence by Donald Trump, and that was basically in pursuit of a coup driven by the irrational belief that the election had been stolen. And I had thought, even before that moment, long and hard about the ongoing Republican Party relationship with far-right fanaticism and extremism, by which I mean bigotry, paranoia, conspiracy theory, racism, tribalism, all the various isms out there. And how what happened under Donald Trump is really nothing new. It's an intensification and escalation, but that the Republican Party for at least 70 years or longer has always encouraged and exploited extremism to win elections and to bring in troops and volunteers and donations. And it seemed like the culmination. I'm not sure it was the culmination, but we saw what looked like the culmination at January 6th with that particular mob of insurrectionists. But there was another mob back in 1964 that captured the notion that the GOP has long tried to capitalize on extremism. And that was at the Republican National Convention which was held in the Cow Palace outside of San Francisco. And the 64 primary contest, presidential primary contest for the Republicans, ended up boiling down to 
Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York, considered a liberal or moderate Republican, versus Barry Goldwater, the libertarian senator from Arizona, who had become basically a right-wing conservative prophet. There was a new emergent conservative movement that started in the mid-50s, and he was seen as their hero, their crusader. And so you had this definitional primary contest between this liberal Republican and this libertarian Republican. And Barry Goldwater, a lot of the energy behind his campaign came from the far right and from fanatics and extremists like the John Birch Society. And for those of us who don't remember what the John Birch Society was, it was basically the QAnon of its day. They believed that the communists, the Reds, had taken control of basically every American institution, from the American government to unions, to universities, to corporations, to schools, to PTAs, to book reviews, to magazines, to newspapers. Everything was under the control of the Reds. And the leader of the John Birch Society, Robert Welch, even said that Dwight David Eisenhower, president, was a communist agent. So that's kind of what they were. And they kind of became the tip of the spear for Barry Goldwater's campaign. They were volunteers. They raised money, particularly in California, which was the final decisive primary battle between Goldwater and Rockefeller. And Goldwater, for the years up to this, had done all he could to try to keep the Birchers within the Republican Party and not disavow them, not denounce them for being extremists and wackos. I mean, they were really, you know, complete Alex Jones-like material, paranoid conspiracy theories. It's kept coming out of them. And he wanted them within the tent. People like Nelson Rockefeller and other Republicans thought this was a corrosive influence upon the party. And they wanted the party to rid itself of the John Birch Society. So back to the Republican convention in San Francisco in 1964, by this point in time, Rockefeller had lost the primary contest to Barry Goldwater, who won the California primary with the help of the John Birchers. And Rockefeller and a bunch of other liberal or moderate Republicans put forward a resolution for the party platform that denounced the Communist Party, the Ku Klux Klan, and the John Birch Society. And when Rockefeller tried to speak in favor of this proposition at the convention, you know, prime time, there was a mob and there was a mob reaction. The audience went nuts. They threw things at him. They howled at him. They hooted at him. Reporters who were there present at the time thought there would be violence. They thought that he would be attacked, physically attacked, uh, as he tried to speak in favor of this proposal. Here was the body politic of the Republican Party having this spasm reacting to Rockefeller's attempt to distance the party from the John Birch Society with near violence. There was anger and hatred and vitriol. It was a very ugly moment, and it was televised on national TV to the extent that a lot of people associated with the Godwater campaign thought this would be the end of the campaign. It was that ugly looking. And I thought this captured the notion 
the idea that the Republican Party has always had this wing, this part of its DNA, these extremists, these hate-driven, paranoid-driven, conspiracy theory-wielding fanatics that the party has always accepted and tried to make use of. It's often been to the side, often been unacknowledged by the party itself, often overlooked by historians and journalists, but it's always been there. And this was one moment where it kind of bubbled up in full view of the nation. And so I thought that was a good place to start to show that what happened on January 6, 2021, while unique in many ways, was not entirely exceptional. I think that's such important historical context. Again, we're talking with David Korn. He's the author of American Psychosis. And the entire book is invaluable in the sense of giving us this broader context, because I do hear a lot from people. And after reading your book, I think incorrectly, this was such a surprise. How are we suddenly here? And situating Trumpism as almost inevitable, I think really did change my perspective on where we are right now. I want to follow up with one question as you were talking about the 1964 Republican National Convention and the fight between Rockefeller and Goldwater, which strikes me as presenting this really stark contrast between what I think people believe we might see a lot of, the quote-unquote more normal Republicans who just have a conservative political ideology but don't embrace the big lie and otherwise embrace truth and science, et cetera, and then somebody who is really playing footsie with racists and extremists and people who embrace bigotry. I'm wondering if you think that what happened in 1964 was inevitable, or was there a moment where the Republican Party could have turned towards Rockefeller? And would that have made all the difference for where we are today? Well, let's step back even from the 64 convention, because the trail I track really begins about 10 years or a little bit longer before that with the rise of McCarthyism. Mm-hmm. Uh, McCarthy, you know, John Birch Society was basically McCarthyism on steroids. Joe McCarthy was the junior senator from Wisconsin, and in the late 40s and early 50s, he got out there and lied and said the State Department was riddled with communist agents, and his conspiracy theories kept getting bigger and wider and, and more implausible to the point that in 1951, he gave a speech on the Senate floor saying there was an immense conspiracy uh, on the part of elites, including the leaders of the U.S. government, to basically destroy America from within and hand it over to the Soviet Union. He meant this quite literally, not metaphorically or figuratively. And the leader of this conspiracy was none other than George C. Marshall, who at that point in time was the defense secretary, previously had been secretary of state. He had created the Marshall Plan, which saved Europe after World War II. And during World War II, he had been one of the leading commanders that won the war. But here was Joe McCarthy claiming that he was leading a cabal that was purposefully trying to annihilate the United States. Not that their policies were wrong or would lead to the end or the destruction of the United States. This was the point. This was the plan. And it's QAnon without baby eating and sex trafficking. 
and the Republican Party at first lionized him. He was using this, you know, this conspiracy theory and winning elections for himself and for other Republicans. And at the 52 convention, the 1952 convention, he was one of the stars of the party. That convention nominated Dwight Eisenhower to be the presidential nominee. And Eisenhower had to campaign with McCarthy um, in Wisconsin in the general election. And Eisenhower, who was a close friend of George C. Marshall, knew that McCarthy was a liar, a scoundrel, and hated him, despised him for his attacks on George Marshall and on the rest of it. And he had a chance when he was campaigning with McCarthy. He had a, he had a junior speechwriter write a paragraph that would have denounced McCarthy during a speech that Eisenhower was scheduled to give with McCarthy present at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And on the train to that campaign rally, all these big Republican poobahs who were on the train, including the governor of Wisconsin, the head of the Republican Party, and the governor of New Hampshire, Sherman Adams, who was the um, chief of staff for Eisenhower, they got wind of this. And they had, I think the technical term is conniptions. And they told Eisenhower, you can't do this. And Eisenhower backed off. You know, their argument was we need Wisconsin to win the general election. And more importantly, McCarthy had brought millions of Catholic voters who previously were basically Democrats into the Republican ranks with his reckless anti-communism and red baiting. And they said, you know, don't cause a problem. And Ike, courageous Ike, the commander of D-Day and everything else, took a dive and said, okay. And he gave a speech that night. It ended up being, according to the Milwaukee Journal, uh, light McCarthyism. You know, it wasn't as dread baiting as McCarthy, but it was close. It's hard to know whether history can turn on five sentences in a speech, right? You know, you don't know. But here was a chance for Eisenhower to try to steer the party away from McCarthyism, which would have brought it away from John Bircherism. And he decided not to do it. The primary contest in California between Rockefeller and Goldwater in 64 was a 50 50 contest. I mean, Goldwater just barely won that. And if Rockefeller had won, maybe things would have been different. But the thing is, and I make this point with Trump and Trumpism, as, as you rightly referred to it as, in that the issue is, is not really that Trump is here and, and with all his deceit and exploitation of bigotry and hatred and all that. The, the, the issue is that there are tens of millions of Americans who buy it, accept it, are susceptible to it, you know, however you want to put it. And there's always been that segment of the population that is vulnerable to conspiracy theories, to paranoia, who can be exploited by demagogic politicians. And, you know, in our lifetime, it's been demagogic politicians of the right, of the Republican Party. So, you know, without dealing with that or erasing that aspect of American political society, I think there always will be the scallywags who want to take advantage of it. I really think scallywags is an underused word, and I'd like to bring it back um, on this podcast and other places as well. And David, you brought up so many important points here, and I want to try and get at 
two big questions I had before our time is up. And you mentioned in your answer, you know, this idea that they had to win Wisconsin to win the general election. And then you mentioned another point that McCarthy was useful because he brought Catholics. And as I was reading the book, it does to me draw this important line between Lincoln, Nixon, Bush, and then even McCain, who ends up choosing Palin as his running mate, all seemingly willing to make these compromises and tolerate the more extremist members of the party. Is it all just to win elections? I know that sounds like such a naive question, but I do hear people say, where is the country before party? Where is the country before winning? Is it is it all to win or is there a little bit of people like Eisenhower saying, yeah, I actually, I support some of those views as well. You know, it's an interesting combination. I think there are, you know, there are obviously, you know, you can just look at the Republican Party today. There are obviously some people there who believe some of the conspiracy swill and hatred they're hurling and they're using. And there obviously are some who don't and just do this to stay on the right side of the base, on the right side of Donald Trump. The point I make in the book is that every Republican leader, whether president or presidential candidate, has in some ways either accepted or embraced this relationship to the party with far-right extremism. A good example, uh, Mitt Romney. By all accounts, Mitt Romney is a decent fellow. I know people have worked for him. I know, you know, people who've been in communities with him, and they all speak to the fact that he's a man of character. Now, a lot of things I disagreed with him on policy-wise, but he's not someone who wants to feel fear and hatred and, and, and promote conspiracy theories that he himself does not believe in. But he knew there was a but coming. But even good old Mitt, in 2011, when he's running for president and mm-hmm. trying to get the Tea Party Republicans on his side during the primaries, what does he do? He embraces and seeks the endorsement of a guy named Donald Trump, who at that point in time is known as the number one champion in the United States of the racist birther conspiracy theory that said that Barack Obama was born in Kenya. And that was, you know, you know an effort to you know, it was a racist effort to delegitimize Barack Obama and to appeal to far-right fanatics who were racists or who believed conspiracy theories of all different types. And, you know, Mitt Romney, he had a choice. He didn't have to fly to Las Vegas and go to Trump's hotel and have a press conference with him, but he did. And in doing that, he validated and authenticated Trump and basically sent out a signal that Donald Trump is an important player in the Republican Party. So, you know, while he didn't buy into the birtherism stuff, he embraced the guy who was promoting it. For what? To win an election. So we see again and again, we see both George Bushes embracing Pat Robertson, who was a purveyor of an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that the banking families of Europe, including the Rothschilds banking family, were working with Satan, quite literally working with Satan to impose a collectivist international dictatorship on the entire world. And they would go 
and you know say Pat Robertson, you are a great spiritual leader because they wanted the Christian coalition, his voters, to vote for them, to volunteer, and to send them money. The Bushes didn't believe this, but they were again validating a guy who was encouraging hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, to believe this pretty destructive paranoia. Does Trump believe the QAnon stuff he talks about? I, I don't know. It almost doesn't matter whether he believes it or not. What did Goldwater believe with the John Birch Society? It's, it's unclear well, you know, exactly how far he went along in uh, absorbing in their rhetoric. But again, it doesn't really matter because they've all found a way to try to harness this energy, which does nothing except strengthen and bolster it. And you mentioned John McCain and Sarah Palin, and that was a great example as well. David, I can hear some people asking as we're having this conversation, or at least I'm asking myself, do you feel that there's any analog for the Democratic Party? I mean, in my view, it's not about, again, policy. It's not about what are your views on taxes or immigration or gun control or the environment or reproductive rights. It's whether or not you're willing to embrace the extreme fringes of those who are willing to bring followers. And I don't see that, and maybe this is a blind spot for me, but I don't see that in the Democratic Party. And is that because they have a different message? Is it because they're above that? Is it because they simply don't have the demand for that? I know that this is something you think about. And again, for our listeners, what do you think accounts for that difference where I don't see it being apples to apples? No, it's not even apples to bananas or apples to oranges. There's a profound asymmetry here. And the far-right extremism that we're talking about, a lot of it is based on irrationality on facts that are not facts, whether it's the big lie in 2020 and 2021 and up to now, or whether it's the notion that the government is run by secret communists in the 50s and 60s. Or you go back to the Tea Party not too long ago in 2010 and 2011, where if you went to Tea Party rallies, which I did, the people there would literally tell you that Barack Obama was a secret socialist and a secret Muslim who had been born in Kenya, who had a secret plan to destroy the American economy in order to impose a totalitarian dictatorship. They believed that. There is no factual basis for that. It's a profound, irrational conclusion. But you had people like Glenn Beck on Fox News every night saying literally those things. And you had people like John Boehner and Republican members of the Senate appearing on the show and legitimizing him. So people believe this. So the Republican Party, John Boehner, in the election of 2010, used the Tea Party to get power and had to acquiesce to this far-right irrationality and paranoia and so forth. Now, you asked about an analog. There is no analog on the Democratic side to the Tea Party or to the John Birch Society going back, or, or even to the big lie proponents, or to QAnon, because Donald Trump has embraced QAnon, and a lot of the big lie leading advocates are QAnon adjacent, QAnon friendly, or QAnon supporting. There is nothing like that in the sense that, yes, you can look at the left, and you can find sometimes 
kooky ideas or conspiratorial ideas on the left, but you cannot find leading national Democrats who cater to that crowd, who court that crowd, who amplify that crowd. Bill Clinton, Michael Dukakis, Barack Obama, Al Gore, give me an example of them embracing someone promoting an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory like Pat Robertson or endorsing someone like Glenn Beck, who says that literally the uh, Obama administration is bent on setting up concentration camps and death panels and all that. It just doesn't exist. And in fact, you know, often the establishment of the Democratic Party has been at odds with people on the left ideologically. You know, in 68, it was the left that had the demonstrations in the 68 convention that in a lot of ways hurt the Democratic Party. It wasn't as if um, Hubert Humphrey cut a deal with Abby Hoffman. So it's a profound asymmetry. There is no whataboutism. There is no both-sidism to this particular question. You know, you can't find an example of Barack Obama embracing something like QAnonism or advocating you know, violence or excusing violence to overturn an election or promoting a big lie like Donald Trump has without any evidence. Yeah, and I know that's a hard thing. It sounds very harsh and partisan to say this is only happening on one side of the aisle, but it really is only happening on one side of the aisle. And that causes, you know, it makes it very hard for people who want to stay in the middle or people who are consider themselves uh, objective reporters in the media to handle something like this. And I think that probably brings us to what happens next, which is going to have to be, I think, the last question for our time together right now. Again, we're talking to David Korn, the author of American Psychosis. It's really just an excellent book. It was such a pleasure to read it because the writing is so fine and also because it helped me to situate a lot of my thoughts in terms of the historical moment that we're in. And I think a lot of people are asking, having heard the conversation that we just did, it does seem like the Republican Party really isn't so much a party anymore. And it's a group of people who support Trump. And as we've said, Trumpism. And I know this is something that you've written about and talked about a lot, but how do you think this plays out for our country in the short term? I know, again, we're recording this the day before the midterms. We'll have more data points in a week or so. But what happens to our country when we have a president? And I know you've written about this as well. You have a recent article where the president said, you know, we're in a fight for the soul of America. And he talked a lot about the threats to our democracy, but I think we both agreed, or I did after reading your article, that he probably didn't go far enough. Where are we in the next five to 10 years in this country? You know, that's a really good question and a difficult one to answer. I mean, we're talking before we know the results of the midterms, but putting that aside, the fact that Trump and Trumpism got more votes in 2020 than 2016 is a troubling indicator given his authoritarian bent and his embrace of extremism and paranoid notions and demagoguery up 
until the 2020 election through his presidency, there were still millions of Americans who wanted more of that. And then after the the advent of the big lie crusade, his incitement of violence, and then his decision to do nothing while the violence was happening, and more recently, his statement that he would pardon people arrested for January 6 crimes if he were to become president again, you have a party that is fully embracing him and supporting all that, uh, even as he posts anti-Semitic messages and embraces QAnon. And the fact that this party is poised, as we speak today, to take over at least one, if not both, houses of Congress, and even if by some unforeseen miracle for the Democrats that doesn't happen, you know, it's still a party that has 50 percent support or so amongst the voting public after aligning itself with all these awful political trends and movement towards authoritarianism. So that's, you know, whatever the election results are, that is not going away. Those political forces will remain inside our nation. And they don't seem to be getting weaker. They seem to be even getting stronger in some ways over the past couple of years. So getting rid of Trump, if something should come up and he doesn't become president or he is, you know, loses or doesn't run, whatever may happen, even if he says he's going to run and pulls out, you know, getting him off the political scene would not change some of these fundamentals. These are here for a long time. And I think one of the lessons of my book is that the roots are deep and you can't flip a switch and make one change, say, de-Trumpify the party by getting rid of Trump and say, oh, job is done here. Well, we're back to normal. No, I think you have to realize that these issues are well-established and that if you want to think about how to counter them, you need to think of strategies to contain and some way shrink the portion of the public that is susceptible to such extremism and, and demagoguery. And that's a long run proposition. It's nothing that's going to happen with one election or even a couple of elections, as I think we're witnessing at this moment in time. So it's a substantial problem that can't just be rolled away easily. And thus, I think we're going to be in this, I hate to use more like uh, metaphors, but be in a battle uh, with these forces for a long time. The good news is, according to polls, there are more people who believe in democracy and who don't support Donald Trump, who don't believe the big lie, who don't accept QAnon, then there are people who do. And it's going to be incumbent upon them to mobilize that majority to recognize the threat to democracy and then be willing to do something about it. That's the task at hand. And certainly at this moment in time, the Democrats, progressives, pro-democracy forces, whatever, have not succeeded in doing that sufficiently. But the potential is there for them to do so. 
David, as you said, that is the task at hand. And I think that's probably the perfect note for us to close on today. Again, we've been talking with David Korn. He's the author, among other books, of American Psychosis. You can also find him on Twitter at David Korn DC. He has an excellent newsletter called Our Land that you can find at davidkorn.com. David, thank you so much for being with us today. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Want to remind everybody you can find me across all of social media at Levinson Jessica. Please continue to subscribe, rate, and review, and we wish everybody a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.